My guest today is Rich Devinney. Rich is a retired Navy SEAL officer whose career spanned more than 20 years and included more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. As the officer in charge of training for an elite Navy SEAL command, Rich spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. Since his retirement, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant with the Chapman and Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek Incorporated, speaking to and training more than 5,000 business, athletic, and military leaders. Rich's book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, is a must-read book for anyone involved in leadership or in the selection and hiring of personnel. I'm excited to have Rich on the show today because I think this book gives us an analytical framework that can help us to understand not only our own innate strengths and weaknesses, but also help to utilize the strengths and weaknesses of those we lead to build a better team. I hope you enjoy my chat with Rich Devinney. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Rich, thanks so much for being here, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, John, great to be here. And uh, like I said, long time coming. It's been a while, but uh, but worth it. So Yeah, totally, totally. So why don't we, just to give context to kind of the book and, and the thought of the attributes, why don't we start, you know, kind of the quick uh, Rich Divini bio. Yeah, sure. You know, I um, grew up in Connecticut. I uh, joined the Navy. Well, as I said, I went to Purdue uh, University for my uh, for my college was Navy ROTC. And um, so I graduated and got commissioned in 1996, Uh, got picked up for uh, for Navy SEALs. So I went straight to SEAL training in 96 um, and then subsequently spent the next 21 years in the SEAL teams, had a, had a tour out in Hawaii, and then most of my career I spent here on the East Coast in Virginia Beach. And um, and of course, it got very kinetic after 2001. So I, I did a lot of deployments. Um, uh, I The numbers start to, they start to elude me, but I think it was seven to Iraq and like four or five to Afghanistan, and then and then a few others here and there smattered around the, around the world. Uh, but as an officer, I was in charge of, obviously, SEAL platoons, SEAL troops. I was, in, I was commanding officer of a of a SEAL squadron, and um, and I was also put in charge of uh, selection and assessment for one of our very specialized SEAL commands, and so that's all. All those experiences allowed me to really start digging into high performing teams, what what they are, what makes them up, how do you you know how do you pick for them and select and assess, and so I became fascinated with that. Um, when I got out of the Navy in, in seventeen, I kind of jumped into the leadership space with a, with a couple of friends of mine. One being Simon Sinek, who's who's a good friend, and we kind of started doing leadership stuff. But I was always kind of keyed in on this performance stuff, and so um, and so as I kind of went down that road, I, I began to think about writing in terms of performance. And one of the first thoughts, ideas I had was, well, let me let me let me get everybody what I think the baseline is, and that's the attributes. And so released the book in twenty twenty one and. Since then, I've built a business with my wife and I around helping businesses and organizations and individuals figure out their their attributes and build very high performing teams. Yeah, it's interesting. You and I talked about it offline, but it it um, you know for years I've taught culture centric leadership, and and one of the things that I talk about is that people have innate skills, 
And mm -hmm. I, I'd always describe them as skills. You know, they have, they have yeah. certain abilities and those abilities often, you know, a, a high level of one ability may offset them having a different ability. And I always use the example of the sales guy and the accountant. You know, the accountant uh, is very precise and very deliberate. And if we put her in charge of, of sales, she would never leave her house. Right. And right. if I asked the sales guy to do the accounting, we would go to prison. Right. And, and it, but I had never had an analytical framework that I'm like, okay, this is it. Yeah. And so when I read the book, it just instantly clicked like, oh my God, that totally explains it. And, and also gives enough detail that that it it kind of allows you to understand how you can apply it in your own life and how you can apply it in dealing with those you lead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And and one of the things I endeavored to do was um, was figure out performance. And I think it all comes back to the early day. I mean, the early days of what I call healthy imposter syndrome. And uh, and that it it kind of started. Uh, I mean, there's there probably instances of it prior to the Navy, but certainly when I finished SEAL training, right, in our class, I think our BUDS class, so BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL training, that's a six-month course that Navy sailors and officers go to to become Navy SEALs. There's a 90% attrition rate at BUDS, right? So, uh, but once you graduate, you are, you're, you're, you go to a SEAL team and you're on your way. Um, our class, I think, if I remember correctly, it was somewhere on, started with our 170 students. Uh, we graduated 38 students. And I remember even in that moment looking around me and saying, how the heck am I still here? All right, because I looked around me and, and, and looked at the, the guys who were around me and said, these guys are seemingly so much better than I am. <laughs> you know, why is that? And so, so, and that, that, by the way, continued throughout my career. And I call it a healthy imposter syndrome because it was not something it was not a feeling that debilitated me. It was a feeling that okay, I'm I'm here for a reason. Obviously, I I I made the I made the the muster. I I I, I did what I needed to do. Um, I'm just going to step up my game right now because I feel like you know I need to. But ultimately, what are those things? What are those elements about me and about these individuals that allowed us to be here standing today uh, on the beaches, graduating today? And so so I began to kind of think about this elemental human performance and what drives us at very elemental levels and and really who are we at our most raw because that's like the saying goes are the real us like we're the the real us shows up at our most raw and i kind of like okay who who's our most raw i had the unique opportunity obviously i volunteered for it to figure that out very shortly after i started buds training day one <laughs> they put you at your most raw right uh, and then you continue that way and then you realize that about yourself you realize about your teammates and then you go to war you go to combat and you see it again um and so i think it's a real strength and advantage and one of my goals was to take the seals off the pedestal and just talk about them and talk about this in a very human way and i think the attributes humanize everything because we all have them right you know some of us can't be seals but you know some some of us, some seals can't be accountants or or entrepreneurs or whatever, we all have, you know, distinctive niches inside of which we excel. But, um, but yeah, so I, I appreciate the, I always appreciate when I hear and when you say that the book was relatable, understandable, and immediately you could take that thing and, and apply it because I didn't want to write another SEAL book. There are plenty of Navy SEAL books out there and there are, most of them are pretty good, right? But I didn't want to write a Navy, another Navy SEAL book. And so, so I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it's interesting. You actually intentionally avoid a lot of the kind of cliches of, of Navy SEAL books, talking about specific units, talking about kind of your career, which which was one of the things that struck me is it's like this is this is more you know self-exploratory and trying to figure out, you know, how did this happen than it was, you know, look at me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is just from a just from a um, 
a, a personal responsibility standpoint. I, I didn't want to ride the brand in any way, you know, and 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 in some cases, you know, maybe prostitute the brand. Um, that that's that's one reason. I want to be respectful of that. And and given some of the the the, the levels and ranks which I held, I, I have a I have a a, a responsibility, um, an official responsibility to do that. So that was one reason. The other reason is because again, I wanted to take the concepts and take it off the pedestal. And as soon as you start wrapping too much specificity in some of these units and some of these situations, it immediately um, it immediately puts you at a distance from the reader. And, and I, and I want to make sure that we understand and the reader understands that this is human stuff. You know, um, it's not just seal stuff. It's human stuff. Um, and and then finally, just <laughs> from an official capacity, you know, you get you know you, if you do it responsibly, you get these books reviewed by the by the government before you release them based on the the rank and position you held. Um, and when I went through the government review, they're like, Hey, this is, there's absolutely zero wrong with this. So it was a, it was a win. Yeah, <laughs> they, no, didn't it's to, they didn't have to black out anything. So, well, and I think, I, I mean, our, certainly our listenership can, can read between the lines as to what you did. Like it's, you know, they, they, they will figure that out. Um, why don't we start with what an attribute is? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So, uh, so this idea is, um, what are those qualities that, that indicate that a human being has what it takes to do the to do the thing, right? It does, not not knows how to do the thing, how how to how, has what it takes to do the thing. And so so the example I'll give is is I, I was told this story about about seal training years ago, and I think it happened before I ever went. But the the story goes that this this kid shows up to, to seal training, and he goes in the instructor's office and says, "I want to be a Navy SEAL," and the instructor says, "Sure, okay, but you have to do a, a swim test first. And he's like, okay, fine. So they take him out to the pool. The swim test is an easy one, you know, 50 meters. So 25 meters to one end, 25 meters back to the other end. And so uh, the story goes that this kid gets ready to go and he jumps in the pool. And as soon as he jumps to the pool, he sinks right to the bottom of the pool. And he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one side. And he touches that side and he walks across the bottom of the pool back to the other side. And he comes up and he's gasping for air, right, nearly drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid, who's, who's still trying to catch his breath, looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And at that point, the instructor pauses and looks at the kid and says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim, right? And the, the, the question is, why does the instructor say that? The instructor says that because if this kid has the attributes, these qualities to show up to Navy SEAL training, and he doesn't know how to swim, he has everything inside of him that we need to be a Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming is going to be easy. So so in separating this, the, 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 the distinctions are these. The skills are not inherent to our nature. In other words, None of us are born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike, okay? We're taught to do those things. We train to do those things. Skills direct our behavior in known and specific environments. Here's how and when to throw a ball. Here's how and when to ride a bike. And then finally, because skills are very easy to see, they're very easy to measure and assess and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. Um, you can put scores around them. You can put statistics around them. This is why we get seduced by skills when we're picking teams or hiring or even performance evaluating. The problem with skills, they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. Right? This is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes are inherent to our nature. In other words, all of us are born with levels of patience, adaptability, situational awareness. Right Now, we can certainly develop these things over time and, and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children. Right? Any of us who have kids or have experienced kids will agree with me when I say there are one-and-a-half-year-olds who are patient and there are one-and-a-half-year-olds who are impatient. Okay, So there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Um, attributes don't direct behavior. They, they inform behavior. They tell us how we're going to show up to an environment. So my son's levels of uh, perseverance and resilience 
informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. Um, and then finally, because they're difficult to see, they're very difficult to assess, measure and test. How do you, how do you measure someone's levels of patience or adaptability, right? So, but they show up the most viscerally and, 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 uh, or yeah, they, they show up the most visibly and viscerally during times of stress challenge and uncertainty. And so when we're talking about teams and individuals, that can operate in uncertainty, chaos, complexity, which, by the way, defines high-performing teams and high-performing individuals. That's the one distinguishing factor. Any team can, can do well when things are going well. The teams that can still perform when things don't go well or go sideways, those are high-performing teams. So if we're talking about that environment and we're missing out on attributes, we're not talking about attributes, we are missing a huge, probably the most important part of the performance picture. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you look at BUDS, and, you know, certainly people wonder why, you know, why is getting cold and sandy a good thing for, you know, revealing how good a Navy SEAL is going to be. And, and, and listening in your book, listening to kind of the origin story uh, of the teams and buds and, and kind of the roots in UDT, it, it, it almost strikes me that they, you know, they were looking for quote unquote tough guys and in the process revealed attributes that made that a much more effective way to assess mm -hmm. who could do the job than skills would. One hundred percent. Well, and I would, I would, I would say that toughness is simply the result of attributes, um, yeah. and, and some attributes combined. And so, so yes, uh, Kaufman in his early days was looking for tough guys, but he was also looking for problem solvers. It's not just about being tough. You can be tough and dumb, right? If you're, but you need to be tough and still problem solve and adapt and and move and flow and flex. And that's when you start to talk about a combination of attributes. Can you actually be tough? Can you tough it out? The idea is, you know, most people in buds quit because of the cold. People, a lot of people think it's all physical, right? And 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 that's why they're like, oh, he's this that guy's a physical study. He could probably do he could probably do SEAL training. Well, that's not the case. We, we, there are Division One athletes who go to buds and quit the first day. Um, it is all about taking you down to zero and then seeing what you have from there, right? And so so toughness is one thing, but can you while you're cold, wet, and, stand, and sandy still perform? That's the case. Or do you, do you wilt into something that's quite useless, right? That's what we're looking for. So it's not only about enduring the cold, the cold, wet, and sand. It's about performing through cold, wet, and sand. And that's a, that's, now you start to get into a combination of attributes that's pretty unique uh, in terms of that profession. But every profession, every niche has its own unique set of attributes that's required. And that's why it's so, so important, because if we understand that individual unique list now we're thinking about and now we understand okay i now i know what i'm looking for in human beings yeah let's let's touch on one more definition then i kind of want to dig into the attributes um let's talk about the difference between peak performance and optimal performance oh yeah so uh, so this is something that that hit me uh, as i was doing this work uh, or began to do this work uh and and it hit me because i was and this was probably around 2010 when i really began to dug into this dig into this i had taken over assessment and selection and i began to dig in this and and one of the things that was predominant in the performance space was this idea of peak performance um and it was kind of a and it still remains this kind of almost a, a, a fad type. I say fad, it's still, it's probably not, it's probably by definition, not a fad because it's still around, right? But certainly an obsession of, of, of people just wanting to be peak all the time, peak here, peak there, peak everywhere, chasing peak, you know, and that's the ultimate thing to peak perform. And, and people used to tell me, you know, you SEALs are the ultimate peak performers. And I said, I said, actually, I, I disagree. We're not. And mm. the reason is because peak by definition is an apex. And there's only one place you can go from an apex and that's down, right? 
peak also has to always or often be planned for, scheduled, and prepared for. So in other words, the pro football player plans and schedules his entire week so that he can peak for three hours on Sunday, right? We don't get to do that. Navy SEALs don't get to do that. Regular human beings don't get to do that. Um, so I said, what we really are are optimal performers. Optimal performance means that I'm going to do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment, okay? And that means sometimes our best looks like peak, right? And it's flow states and everything's clicking, everything's going great. But sometimes our best is I am literally head down, going step by step, nugging it out because that's all I have right now. And it's dirty and it's gritty and it's ugly and it's hard. And that is still performing optimally. So optimal performance allows us to do a couple of things. First, it allows us to celebrate those times when we are not at peak, when we're actually gutting it out and it's dirty and it's gritty and it's ugly and hard. It feels like we're not making progress at all, but we are. That is still performing optimally. I can't tell you how many missions we went on overseas that we come back and we're like, man, that was ugly, right? But we still got the job done, okay? Um, and then it allows us to also do what I call responsible energy management. In other words, I don't have to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store. I can be at some other energy level. You know, another thing that people think about SEALs is they'll, they'll see it on TV or movies where um, before a mission, a group of SEALs will like huddle up and start hoo-yawing and high-fiving like some athletic team getting ready to take the field. That never happens, okay? We never do that. We never did that. In fact, a lot of times we'd be in our helicopters flying into combat and the guys would be sleeping. They'd be taking, they'd be napping. And there's reasons because we don't, we don't know what's coming. We don't know how long we're going to be out there. We don't know what we're going to, is going to be required energetically. We're not going to waste an ounce of our energy doing things we shouldn't or don't need to do. And so optimal performance is kind of this umbrella underneath which peak lives, gutting it out lives, and even recovery lives, right? Um, and so all high-performing teams understand this modulation, understand these differences. And so, so when I talk about performance and optimal performance, we're talking about performance in any environment, especially in environments of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Yeah, it's interesting. As I read that, I'm an Ironman distance triathlete, mm -hmm. and, and you are an Ironman one day. That's it. Yeah. Because there, there, you peak. Yeah. To Ironman. And prior to that, you, you don't have the fitness. And the day after, you certainly don't have the fitness. Right. Uh, and, and so it's, it's people are like, oh, you're an Ironman. Okay, you could just do, you know, you can do, no, you're going to, you're going to peak that level and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have to recover from it. And there, there is a difference between what you can maintain in fitness on a regular basis. Even, yeah. even if you are pushing to be as fit as you possibly can on a regular basis, there's only, you're only going to get so much fitness before you break down, before you, you know, whatever. And it, and it struck me that same way that that really optimal performance is driving for what is the best I can be on a regular basis, maintainable, and and, and at the drop of a hat have that level of performance versus you know I'm going to the Olympics and this is going to be the only day in my life I ever run this fast. Right. Yeah. Hundred percent. I think and they think though. So the reason why optimal performance is a good umbrella underneath which to kind of bin everything is because the athlete performs optimally as well but the athlete just has the has the uh, environment or or situation where they know exactly when they need to peak that it's, yeah. it's defined it's codified whereas we don't right we don't know we have to peak on demand we have to recover on demand and we have to be we have to be managing ourselves so that when it's time to peak on demand we can um, and what that means is, okay, I'm going to peak. And then as soon as I'm done peaking, as soon as that's not required, let me see if I can get some recovery. Cause I don't know when I'm going to need to peak again, or I'm going to have to go down this long road, right? The long mission that's hours and hours, mountains, climbing mountains through Afghanistan. And it's going to be gut wrenching and we're going to have to gut it out the whole time. Um, so even getting to the target, I'm just going to have to do my best. I'm going to have to manage myself so that when I'm on the target, I can do my best so that when I'm coming off the target, I can do my best. And it's just this, it's just a, it's a much more realistic way to modulate ourselves. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So so why don't we let's dig into the attributes a little bit. It, it just for kind of the listeners, you know, edification. Um, maybe let's start with the five major categories, and then we can dive into each of those. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I uh, I talk about twenty five. What's interesting, John, is that since doing the work, or since doing the book and, and doing work with organizations, we've beefed up that list to forty two attributes now in nine categories, right? So, but that's wow. that's another that's a that's a couple hours of, of of deep dive. But let's let's talk about these five because I think these five still are great for the the introduction to optimal performance. And so the five categories are grit. Uh, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. And those those are categories inside of which these 25 attributes kind of bin comfortably. They're not exclusive, right? So in other words, just because an attribute is in the courage category doesn't mean it, it it's not used in drive or used in leadership, right? But they comfortably bin in those categories. And so grit is this, this idea. Uh, and again, people think of grit as a, as a singular thing a lot of times. They describe grit as an attribute in of itself, but it's not. Grit is actually a combination of things kind of blended and catalyzed and stewed together that create, it's a result of what's kind of blended. And, and actually Angela Duckworth wrote a great book years ago called Grit. And she- Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. And she said the same thing. It's, it's, it's a combination of things. So the attributes required, and we'll get into these I know later, but the attributes that are required for grit or in that category are courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resiliency. Um, mental acuity are the attributes that describe how our brain processes the world around us. Um, so just, just uh, the, the, you know, as we're walking through environments, what are we, what are, what's our brain doing in that and, ha and how is it working? Right. So situation awareness, compartmentalization, task switching and learnability, uh, drive. If grit speaks to kind of those shorter term, you know, uh, endeavors drive speaks to the longer term, what are the attributes that, that create the driven person and be able to do something long-term, um, those are, uh, our self-efficacy, um, uh, discipline, open-mindedness, cunning, and yes, narcissism. And we can get in that as well if we want. Um, leadership is the next category. Uh, what are the attributes that allow others to uh, to look at us and decide that we're leaders? Here's the thing about leadership. Being a leader and being in charge are two separate things. Uh, one is a position, one is a behavior. And, and I always kind of joke, you don't get to self-designate. In other words, you don't get to call yourself a leader. That's like calling yourself good-looking or funny, okay? Um, other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow based on the way you behave. If you call yourself a leader and you look back and there's no one following you, I got bad news for you. You're not a leader, right? So, so those behaviors are what cause people to say, this is someone I want to follow. And, and many of us, if there's listeners who've been in the military or been in any any hierarchical bureaucracy of any sort, they may have had this experience. I know I did where I've looked at a leader before, someone above me, I say, looked at a leader, looked at someone above me in a position hierarchically. And I say to myself, I wouldn't follow that person anywhere. Right. Meanwhile, there's someone over here to my right who has no hierarchical position whatsoever. And I say, I would follow that person to hell and back. Okay. And it's because of the way we behave. So these leadership attributes are basic elemental things. They're empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. Those are the types of behaviors that we typically as human beings say, Ooh, okay. When I feel and see that, I tend to say that's someone I would, I would follow. Right. Uh, and then team ability. Team ability is really how we effectively operate in teams. I don't, the word, I stole the word from, uh, from Naval Special Warfare. They, I think they made it up because I, because I don't think it's a real word, but it's kind of how you, how you operate as a teammate. Okay. And, but just like leadership, you don't get to call yourself a good teammate. Other teammates, other people decide whether or not you're a good teammate based on the way you behave. And so, and so those, those attributes are, uh, are, um, um, uh, integrity, um, uh, uh, open-mindedness, no, integrity, humor, 
humility and and conscientiousness those are the attributes for team ability and and yeah so we can dive into any one of those but but that's how those categories kind of been out yeah it makes sense and and i think that that when you when you dig into it, it it's an overwhelming list initially mm-hmm. right you look at you like oh my god but when you when you start to look at them um you know piece by piece and dig into them you start to realize that that oh yeah that that kind of makes sense like you have to have you know, all of these different components. And and so what I'd like to do is like kind of go through and, and obviously, you know, audience is, is a, is a, you know, tactical operator audience. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll kind of hit some of them a little harder because I yeah. think they're probably a little more relevant. Um, but why don't we start with grit? Um, again, Angela Duckworth's amazing book, uh, which if you haven't read, everybody should read. Um, you know, kind of lays the foundation, but I kind of like the approach that you took of, you know, by splitting it up into attributes, it it makes a little more sense, I I think. Yeah. So why don't we walk through the attributes that build grit? Yeah, absolutely. And before I do, though, let me just say that for everybody's kind of uh, essay, um, uh, we all have all of the attributes, okay? The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, okay? So for example, take, and we'll talk about adaptability, but, um, but adaptability, I... If 10 is high and one is low, okay, I would consider myself about a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it, okay? Someone else might be a level three on adaptability. When, when the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them to go with the flow and roll with it, right? They're still adaptable because all human beings are. And so, so if we're kind of line up this these attributes on a wall like dimmer switches, all of us would have different dimmer switch settings. And the way I like to describe this is I like to think of, uh, of us as humans as, as automobiles, right? We all have the same basic component parts. We all, yeah, we all have a steering wheel. We all have a, a carburetor. We all have tires. You know, the component parts are the same. But, you know, some of us are Jeeps and some of us are Ferraris, right? And um, and there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. Um, but it's those it's those intricacies, those 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 details that cause us to be different uh, that allow us to say that I'm better in this genre than I am in that genre. And that's how we have to look at these attributes. So, so as we discuss them, I just want everybody to think you're going to be high on some, you're going to be low on others, you're going to be medium on, on, on probably the most of them, right? Uh, but that those highs and lows, especially the ones you're high on, low on, really start to distinguish and dis- and uh, and dissect and articulate your performance in all aspects, but to include um, uncertainty, challenge, and stress. And so, um, yeah. So that's why I want to lay that kind of foundation. Well, it's funny because it's like your video game. You know, you think about playing video games, whether it's Mario Kart or Madden Football or Call of Duty. You know, when you're picking a character. Uh, yes. they're, they're good at this. They're not good at this. They're strong, you know, strong, like ox, smart, yeah. like chicken. Um, you know, there's this kind of variety of, of different attributes. Uh, and, and, and it is, you know, we, we are all, we all have them, but we are and and we all know people that, mm-hmm. that, you know, if you, if you are married, you know, that your wife has certain attributes that you don't yeah. and that you have attributes that she doesn't. And, and it is, it isn't a judgment thing, but from a leadership standpoint, it is, it is being able to pick people that are really good at the things that you need them to do and then trying to build an organization around, you know, if, if Rich is really good at these five things, then let's try to have Rich do those five things and not do the four things that Rich isn't that good at. 100%. And honestly, every group and team, every team organization group, and we do this work with with teams and organization, they have a unique set list of attributes that are required for that team. So in other words, the attribute list that uh, is required for a great Navy SEAL team looks different than the list for a 
great surgical team or teaching team, right? So, so first is about understanding what that unique list looks like. Then when you build the team, there's going to be a couple of those attributes. And we're going to talk about maybe two or three, maybe four tops that every person on the team has to have, right? And we know that. I mean, it's just, they just have to have these, or else they can't do the job. We could say that with tactical uh, operators, or, you know, whatever, you know, SEALs, cops. I mean, we just, there's just one, two, or three of these things that all of us have to have. But then it's about matching and, 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 and uniting the team like a zipper, right? So now we all have the basic three or four that we need, but now Rich is a little bit lower on uh on patience and john is higher on patience so let's zipper this and so now we have both represent we've we've taken care of the problem right because we can fill in those gaps because not everybody's going to have the perfect set of attributes and so that's how we have to kind of look at that so i'm, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's the, that's the way teams and high performing teams are in fact built well and it's the same way that that you know elite special operations units you, you know you cannot maintain the level of skills and knowledge you know, there is so much in a modern environment that you can't maintain an extremely high level of knowledge at everything. Right. So, right. so you do the same thing. You cadre out the team. So, you know, Rich, Rich is, is a really good sniper and John is a really good breacher. And, you know, we're going to take these skills and put them together to form this kind of milieu that allows us to solve whatever problems we're faced with. Yeah. And, and the same thing goes with attributes. And in fact, more so with attributes to do the problem solving. Again, we, we problem solve with attributes. You know, once we have a solution, we use skills to, to execute, right? But, but the, most of the process of our problem, of, of, our, of our experience when we're in an environment, especially the environments we, the listeners, and certainly I experience is, is let's figure, we have to figure it out. We have to figure out what's going on first. And then we apply the appropriate skill to that, right? So skills are are absolutely necessary, but they're at their very back end. They're at the they're 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 the very last thing we apply to any problem because all that rest of this stuff is is based upon okay, what do you bring to this environment so you can actually figure out the environment, solve a problem, and then apply a solution. But what's interesting about that is skills, because they're quantifiable and measurable, we're very inclined to want to do to look at skills. And, yeah. and one of one of my favorite elite units. Um, their selection process, they describe as specifically trying to avoid high functioning assholes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And focusing on skills is how we pick high functioning assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would, in concert with that, one of the things we always used to say is, is the hardest part about our job, you know, the Navy SEAL job, especially the Navy SEAL job at the levels I was at was the hardest part is, is, is deciding not to shoot. Right. Yeah. And because anybody can pull the trigger and anybody can spray and pray. Right. But the 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 ability to understand an environment that's violent, that's um, that's kinetic, uh, that's in your face and is very, very rapid to understand and process that environment in a very rapid way and then make a decision to pull the trigger or not to pull the trigger in in a in, a, in less than a second is, in fact, attribute based. Pulling the trigger. Sure. That's a skill. Right. But but that comes. But but that comes after everything, the decision not to pull a trigger, that's all attributes based. Which is especially true in a law enforcement environment, right? Where, yes, where it, is, it is constantly evolving, chaotic. You know, your traffic stop might be for gangbangers with guns, or it might be an old lady who just got lost. Yes. And um, that actually, became, why don't we go directly to mental acuity then? Because okay. it, yeah. it is, while we're talking about that, like that, that's obviously on point. So let's start with mental acuity. That's a great place to start. Cause I do think our professions, uh, those are the most important because, you know, grit has courage and all that stuff that matters, but it's, it's really how our brain processes the world around us. And I think, um, well, let's get into it. So situation awareness is the first one. That's basically our levels of vigilance about our environment. So people who are high on situation awareness, like seals or, or cops or, or first responders, um, 
typically, uh, we, we just notice more than your average person. I walk around New York City and I notice stuff. I notice hands. I notice dark alleys. I notice cars. My wife, who's walking next to me, she doesn't notice as much. And again, there's no judgment there. Her situation awareness is just lower than mine. Um, but we are all, you know, we all uh, have a level of vigilance uh, in, in our in our in our world, at least. But that's that's situation awareness. The next one, which is extremely important, probably the most important one, certainly for Navy SEALs. I would imagine it's for cops uh, and first responders as well. But again, you can't make it through SEAL training if you don't have a preponderance of, of, of compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is the ability to, um, inside of an environment, um, kind of pick something to focus on, understand what the priority is, pick that, fo pick, pick that thing, focus on that, and block out everything else until that thing is complete, right? That's compartmentalization. So, so the example of that, like in SEAL training, is if you can't, so in SEAL training, the, the kind of the crucible of SEAL training, which many folks may have heard about, is Hell Week. Okay, Hell Week is in first phase. It's the fifth week of training, first phase. Hell Week starts on a Sunday afternoon, and it doesn't finish until the following Friday. And during that time, you only get about two or two and a half hours of sleep the entire week. And the whole time you're running around the big heavy boats in your head, you're freezing, you're sandy, you're wet. That's where you get most quitters during Hell Week. Uh, and the saying goes, if you think about Friday of Hell Week on Monday, you will quit. Right. And Hell Week is all Hell Week is. It's just a it's just an act of constant compartmentalization. You're just picking things to focus on constantly. You're, you're picking something. You're blocking. If I'm in the freezing surf zone, I'm just focusing on something, blocking out everything else and then moving on until until that's complete. And so and so compartmentalization also applies because in a in a in a tactical environment and we'll, we'll just, you know, let's just say let's say if a SEALs are entering a room or a SWAT team's entering a room. That's literally what we're doing. We're coming into the room with a large, with a large view, situation awareness. We're immediately assessing threat. We're picking something to focus on. We're focusing on it. We're addressing it. And as soon as that's addressed, we're coming back out. And we're picking something else. And we're addressing that. And we're coming back out. So, so really, this what what's, what what the unconscious genius of this system, certainly at Buzz, was is they are. It's literally hyper developing this this attribute that you're going to need in combat, you know, and that's compartmentalization. So I think that's why compartmentalization is so important. Um, task switching is the next one. And, and task switching, again, you also need because the people who are really high at task switching, they they actually look like multitaskers. People actually sometimes make the assumption that they are, but we know multitasking is a myth, right? The conscious mind can't focus on more than one thing at a time. And, and in fact, I've been debated on this. My neuroscientist friends have been debated on this. People say, well, uh, Rich, I can I can drive my car and listen to my podcast. And that's true. You can. But it doesn't count if you've relegated that other activity to your unconscious mind. The reason why you can drive your car and listen to your podcast is because you don't have to think about driving your car. But if you're driving your car, listening to your podcast and someone swerves in front of you and you have to take evasive maneuvers to avoid that person, you will have to rewind the last 15 seconds of that podcast because your brain will have hopped. And so, so high task switchers can go from the the email to the conversation to this to that and they can do it very rapidly whereas if you're lower on task switching sometimes it's harder to it's harder to pull out of one thing and focus on another and pull out of one thing so so in the in the uh, first responder profession the seal profession that the tactical uh, 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 officer profession uh, you need to be able to compartmentalize but then you need to be able to pull out and task switch fairly fairly rapidly so there's a balance there that has to be addressed um, and then finally learnability I think learnability is an interesting one because um, learnability doesn't have much to do with our ability to learn. It has to do with the speed and efficiency with which we learn. So, so in other words, 
those people who are high on learnability, they're the people who you can show or tell how to do something once and they got it, right? Someone else who's a little lower might have to be told a couple times. They might make a couple mistakes. They'll get it, but it just takes a little longer. And so, so learnability is probably the one that you, it's very, it's very subjective to the environment, but you could probably be a little bit lower on that one than the other ones, even as a SEAL, even as a cop, because, because, and you can't be super low because you have to learn it somehow. You have to, but, but some of the stuff we learn, and I could throw CQC, close quarter combat into this category, you don't, you, it doesn't have to be a super fast up, up, upload in your system there you, you'll have some chances to kind of upload that it can't be slow right so you have to be probably in the middle level or a little higher but but it does have to do with this speed and efficiency with which you learn and so that's those are the mental acuity attributes um in total and i think those are the ones that um really speak quite uh quite accurately to things that certainly we did in the seal teams and certainly most of the most of your audience some of these folks uh do on a daily basis well, it's interesting because it, it, as you were describing this, I'm I'm thinking of my friends who are coming back from overseas and how tuned up they are mm -hmm. when when they're coming back, and it is really mental acuity that is pushed. Yes, you know the, their situational awareness is is overloaded. Um, so, so by the it, way, this is this by the way. So it's a good opportunity to say any of these attributes at their extremes is bad, right? So too much of anything, too little of everything is bad, right? Situation awareness is a great is a great example of this because because yes coming over coming back from overseas we all a lot of us experience what we call hyper vigilance and that actually can be very stressful on the system and I remember literally coming back from the war zone and I'd be for example walking in New York and I'd have to very deliberately say to myself okay I don't have to worry about the guy who's walking five feet behind me I have to I have to turn that off I have to I have to come off that a little bit and so 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 hyper vigilance can actually be seeds to PTSD if you're not careful because because yeah. you just can't it's hard to turn off it has to be a very deliberate effort um, so folks coming back from overseas where everything is a threat you have to be able to understand that and say okay i'm going to i'm going to dial that down a little bit very very deliberately um to the extent you can i mean i still can't i still can't get over people who walk around the city with headphones that just is beyond me but again everybody has everybody is their own person <laughs> yeah the world the world needs victims too um but yeah no it's, it's it's interesting because it is you know you think of any of these any of these traits in and of themselves if tuned up too high you know, if you're if you are too hyper vigilant, you're you're never even going to be able to leave the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, if you compartmentalize too effectively, you're you're not going to be able to to move from from big to small or from complicated to simple or. Well, know, and, and, and honestly, like the world will 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 burn down around you. Like so, so one of my good friends, um, he's a he's a neuroscientist out there in California. His name is Andrew Huberman. Has a great yep. great podcast called the Huberman Lab. And he and I have been friends for years. And so he was actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because he and I were working on some stuff and he encouraged me to do it. Um, but he he's funny because he's a self-admitted high compartmentalizer, low task switching. And what that means in his life is he is so good at dialing into something and he'll just drop in and he can spend hours on one thing. like, And that's why he's so good at his podcast, his research and all this stuff. He'll spend hours. But Everything around him, his his world can burn down around him, and he won't. <laughs> it would be and he, yeah. it's hard for him to pull back out. Now you think about him as a scientist. That's actually a really it's it's advantageous, right? Because you need to be able to focus in, right? But but you can start to see where this might have detrimental effects if you're placed in an environment where being able to pull out is necessary. So that's why I think that like uh, the most of the audience you have, um, and certainly you know um, seals or any type of that environment, you need to have a little bit of balance. You need to compartmentalize. But always maintain a situation awareness. So if 
If I'm if I'm in something, if I'm focused on something, and suddenly a new priority it presents itself, I need to be able to to, to task switch that new priority. And so there's a there's a real balance there, I think, between these for for some professions. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, Huberman is is an extremely deep compartmentalizer because it's what makes his podcast fantastic. Hundred percent. Because nobody else would spend that much time digging into the stuff he digs into yeah. to the level he does. That's right. It, it's interesting though, because compartmentalization, like you know, you always talk about front front sight focus, people coming front sight focused. Yeah. That's basically compartmentalization at the extreme, right? That's right. Locking down. Yeah. Um, yep. and, and losing situational awareness. Yeah. And we used to like, we used to train, um, uh, to go into rooms, um, like close quarter combat. And we used to train, you know, both eyes open, right? So you have one eye that's looking down your sight and the other eye is open and you're just training your, your one eye to be focused on where it needs to be, but you have your other eye. So you maintain a level of periphery, right? Because you, you don't want to get front side focused. And so, uh, and that was a deliberate tactic we used to train to so that we didn't get front side focused. So we'd always maintain that. Plus it's obviously faster. You don't want to be closing an eye to, to aim and then shoot, but, um, but it, it speaks to exactly that. Yeah. Let's, um, let's move on. Let's, let's move on to grit because yeah. grit is, I think, you know, it's, it is the, 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 category of attributes that everybody associates with seals and with cops. And, and I think there is probably an overemphasis on grit. Yeah. Um, as, as a group of attributes, everybody thinks, Oh man, if you're gritty, then it's going to be, you know, like we want the most gritty guy we can possibly get. And, and like you said, any extreme is too much, Yeah. but let's walk through kind of how, what, what comprises grit. Yeah. The attributes that comprise grit. So courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resiliency. So just kind of walking through that first courage, because it's really interesting. Um, and again, this is stuff Huberman and I worked on in depth when we first met, which was like, I don't know, six years ago, he was running his fear lab there in Stanford. And so he was studying the neurology behind fear. Um, and I was applying, okay, this is kind of what we do, how we process it in the, in the, in the field. Um, and one of the things, you know, one of the things we know about fear is that when we begin to have a fear response fear begins to enter our system amygdala gets tickled autonomic arousal goes up our brain presents us with two choices and we all know these choices one is fight one is fl uh, flight or flee okay people have thought about and people have said freeze before as a choice but neuro neuro neurology neuroscientists have kind of determined that freeze is really kind of an oscillation between the two you're you're kind of deciding should you fight or should you free uh should you flee so but the idea is um whether you fight or whether you flee that's a specific each has a specific switch in the brain that gets clicked and so so if you decide to fight and this means step into your fear it doesn't necessarily mean put your dukes up right but you're stepping into your fear or discomfort that switch gets clicked all right and that is the courage switch okay and when you hit that courage switch you actually get a dopamine reward for that effort right which makes sense because nature has designed us to in fact step into our fear it's exactly why we as a species has gone have gone from cave dwellers to space explorers right because because nature has designed our systems to step in and be rewarded when we step into our fear and discomfort but all that to say um courage as an attribute is the frequency with which you step into your fear and anxiety right so what does that mean it means that just because you're a navy seal doesn't mean you're more courageous than the, the average person on the street right because you could literally have a group of Navy SEALs in, in, in a gunfight with Al-Qaeda, physiologically feeling less fear than the eight-year-old you just asked to step in front of the class and introduce themselves, okay? And so so the idea is how frequency, how frequently are you stepping into the fear? Um, the, you could be a generally anxious person, and if you're stepping into your discomfort, 
and 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 your and your fear often you're you're accessing that card switch often your courage is higher your your attribute is is scored higher right uh, because again you cannot have courage there's no access to that card switch unless there's fear presence right and so or you could have someone who who does seemingly very brave things i don't know if you you're familiar with uh, alex honnold he did the free solo uh, yeah. called free solo amazing i mean i watched that movie and i get shivers it's just it's insane Right. That guy, when they did the, the move, they looked at his brain and his fear response is not like normal people's. Right. It takes a lot for the, his fear response to even kick in. Right. So so I would never say Alex is not courageous. <laughs> right. But the card switch is not getting accessed as quickly as some normal person like as me on that rock. My card switch would be accessed. I mean, as soon as I'm 10 feet up, I'm going to be accessing my card switch on that. Right. So so again, it's courage as an attribute is how with what frequency. So I think that's important in terms of in terms of defining certainly our profession. Um, well, I think courage is a very good example of where the extreme uh, of an attribute is detrimental, right? Because somebody who is too courageous will get killed. Yes. Yeah. And then like in the book, I say, uh, um, a commanding officer once told me as a young junior officer, beware the fearless leader because that person is going to get you killed. Fear is a, is a human response that's designed as a risk assessment tool for human beings. Right. And so we, if we don't, if we're not understanding our fear and accessing our fear, um, we're not risk assessing properly, right? And so, so that you could get into the bulldog syndrome. We run in the burning building. So, so yeah, too high is is bad, just as much as too low. Yeah. Um, what about perseverance? So yeah, if if courage is the ability to step into fear and discomfort, perseverance is the ability to continue doing it <laughs> over and over again. It's literally <laughs> this ability to just kind of keep going, head down. I'm gonna just gut it out, right? I will just move through, move through, move through. Uh, obviously extremely effective and advantageous. However, we can see how um, too much of this, especially if you have very high perseverance and low resiliency, um, you uh, you will burn out. And people actually confuse, they could, well, I should say they conflate uh, resiliency and perseverance quite a bit. Um, they think they think about resilience as, hey, if I get hit, I'm I'm getting back up again, right? Perseverance is get hit seven times, or you know, fall down seven times, get up eight. That's perseverance. Resilience is when I get when I when I take a hit, when I get knocked off my baseline, how quickly can I get back to that baseline? That's re, that's resilience, and we'll talk about that in a second. But perseverance is quite simple. It's 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 this ability to just kind of keep on moving through, just churn through, churn through, churn through. Obviously, too high could lean to uh, burnout. Too low, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna get anything done. So let's let's then we'll skip adaptability for a second and yeah. move on to resilience because I think it, it especially in a PTSD context, um, I think resilience is is you know really important. Yeah. Um. So so it, walk me through resilience. Like, give me give me examples. Yeah. So so just visually, if we could if we could imagine our lives. Imagine a line, and we draw a line uh, for our lives. And le the left side of that line is the day we were born. The right side is today, right? Just a straight line on a page. And then we just start to plot the highs and lows of our life, as our life as we've gone through it. And the highs can go above the line, and the lows can go be uh, below the line, right? And then we decide to draw a line connecting all those dots. All of us are going to have what looks like a sine wave, right? Because our our lives are quite literally a series of of ups and downs. And so, so you can kind of think of that line as baseline. And the idea of resiliency is when we hit a low, how rapidly and efficiently can we get back to baseline? When we hit a high, how rapidly and efficiently can we get back to baseline, right? Because if you can't do it, uh, if you can't do it at all, you're in trouble, right? But if 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 you if you move too slowly, you're gonna risk like not getting back to baseline after a challenge. You're gonna risk another challenge coming, 
and you're just going to get further and further down below that baseline because you you get you go from zero to minus five. You only res, you only res, uh, you're only resilient up to maybe uh, minus four, or minus three, and then you get hit again. Now you're down to minus seven, and you go to minus five. Now you're down to minus ten. Right? Same thing with uh, with with uh, with good things, right? Because we have a we have a um, an experience uh, of of success or elation. If we can't get back to baseline, then suddenly we are in a position where maybe we get complacent. Uh, maybe we start resting our laurels. We get lazier or 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 uh, or um, or to our arrogance, right? So so resilience is this quite literally this ability to kind of get back to baseline. And how can we? How fast can we get back to baseline? Those who are high on resilience can in fact get back a lot faster. Well, and one of the concepts that that you talk about in the book, and that I had, I had read the book, is anti fragility. Yes, right. It's it's this notion. It, I think we we think of resilience as you know, like when when you hear the word, you think of oh yeah, you know man, that that guy's really tough. He's he's very resilient. Um, but when you put it in a context of getting back to baseline, why don't you contrast that for me between what you know the difference between resilience and and fragility or anti fragility? Yeah. So so. So anti-fragility is well. Let's, okay, let's just kind of. I'll give you the opposite first, right? If you if you are unable to get back to baseline, you kind of think about that sine wave, right? You're it's it's slowly going to go down. It's going to descend. Your your baseline will slowly descend. That you're falling into entropy, okay? Uh, because you're not recovering enough to get back to your baseline. So you slowly fall into entropy. Anti-fragility is when I go through something. When I recover, I actually recover to an extent where I'm stronger from it. In other words, my baseline increases. So, so antifragility, and again, a great book by Nassim Taleb called Antifragile, yeah. right? Um, uh, but it's this idea that when I, when something bad happens, when I get hit with a challenge, um, I grow from it, right? And that's really important. There's a very, there, and there's very unique strategies. That's another uh, set of stuff that Huberman and I worked on together. Um, that uh, you know that we'll, we'll probably release here soon, but uh, but this idea that can we can we design ourselves and design our systems that when we hit when we hit a challenge or get something or, or have something stressful or challenging or uncertain or traumatic happen to us, can we conduct ourselves in a way that when we come back up, we're actually our our apex is higher than it was before. That's what we want to do, and that's anti-fragility. So that baseline is moving up, and we're getting stronger. That's what our goal should be. Resilience is definitely good. If, if, if we have nothing else, let's be resilient. Let's get back to baseline. When and if we can, at any, any time, can we actually grow from it? That's actually that's, that's the best. Well, I think that's kind of the new developing doctrine around post-traumatic growth. Yes, 100%. Right. You, you, you experienced trauma, and your resilience will take you back to baseline, but you know, so if you are very resilient, you will you will recover from the trauma. Yeah. But the difference between you know recovering and and post traumatic growth is you will you will use the trauma to inform development and growth and becoming stronger. Hundred percent. Yeah. And in the book, I talk about this. It's it's much like this this physiological process called hormesis, which is this idea that yeah. you know um, that the a system can get stronger if you if you feed it small levels of toxins it starts to inoculate so it's a it's a it's the it's the it's the crux uh, or the basic premise of of most vaccines right you just a little you know throw a little in a system your body will get used to fighting that uh, but our bodies right our bodies are systems that actually conduct hormesis on quite 
uh, often occasions um and um and and we can do this mentally as well um can we can we use injections of stress challenge uncertainty to in fact inoculate ourselves and get our stronger so that next time we get hit we can actually take a lot more well and, and i mean anybody that works out right is engaging in hormesis anybody yes. that works out 100%. is, is yeah. in, engaging in you know post-traumatic growth yes 100%. like you are by definition damaging your body and it responds by not only going back to baseline, like you don't just recover, you know, if you lift a heavy object, you tear a bunch of muscle fibers, you're sore. Yeah. You don't just get back to baseline. If you do it regularly, you get stronger. Yeah. But what is the key to that process? The key to that process is recovery, right? If you lift yeah. your arm, if you lift your biceps every day, you're not, your biceps aren't going to get bigger, you know, unless maybe you're 18, because we know at 18, at 18 our, our bodies are so fast, right? But, but ultimately recovery is the key. And so, so even in the, process of antifragility from a from a physical mental emotional standpoint that recovery is is the most important thing and, and the recovery is going to look different for everybody right and it's, it's going to depend on the trauma right because depending on the trauma you may need a much longer time to recover fully um and and what i always say is is if you are in a position where you've gone through something and you're finding recovery different difficult and so the by the way the way you the way you know you're recovered that you're finished with that step is is that when you when you think about or recall that instance, um, you can do so objectively. There's no more trigger, right? That means you've recovered properly. But if you can't, if you're having trouble getting there by yourself, I always say get help. You know, get as you know, get help fast, right? Do do as much as you can. We can't always do this by ourselves. There are a lot of people. There's a lot of places you can get help to recover properly, especially if it's a if it's a more intense trauma. Um, but we can practice this stuff just with little trauma in our lives, right? The traffic jam, the 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 day, the bad day, the meeting that went on as uh, you know not as planned, and things like that. We could practice this resiliency, exercising this resiliency muscle, um, so that we get good at it, and and hopefully when bigger things hit, we can we can we can be we can be faster with the process. So okay, let's let's use that to transition to adaptability. Yeah. Adaptability is actually a lot out of the three. It's probably the most simple and straightforward. I mean, this is this is literally uh, the ability to adapt to an environment. When the environment changes out, uh, you know, around us outside of our control, how can we best adapt? Right? Um, it's a very reactive attribute, right? But this is in a book I talk about. This is the kind of be like the frog. The frog has, as a species, survived five extinction level events in, on this planet, right? And they've done so because. Well, when they live, when they need to live in the water, they live in the water. When they need to live on land, they live on land, right? And they've just they've they've adapted to an environment. So so you so adaptability again. The reason why it's part of the grit is because if you are unadaptable, part of the whole part, the whole pr process or the whole purpose of being gritty is you are able to push through and power through some sort of environment, some sort of situation. So the so the outside environment is implied, and the outside environment is always going to throw things at you that you can't control, that you have to adapt to. So if you are low on adaptability, um, you may be gritty, but it's not going to be for that long. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the the old Bruce Lee saying, right? You'd be like water, yeah. you know, fill whatever container you go into and and move to whatever shape. And, and it is, I think, especially you know, thinking to a business context, like part of entrepreneurship is, is high levels of adaptability. Yeah. Like you have to... I think over the last four, you know, 38 years of my career and, and the business I run every day is a different business, yeah. right? The, yeah. the situation changes, the clients change, the technology changes and, and the, the organizations that 
you know, you think of, of organizations that have been successful for long periods of time. Apple is one that comes to mind and, and they're extremely adaptable. Yeah. They're constantly evolving. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense that it's, it's not, it's not okay to just be, you know, you, you don't want too much, you know, strength for lack of a better term and, and not enough adaptability because you will continue to beat your head against the same wall and eventually, yeah, you're not you're not going to survive it. Hundred percent, and and the the reverse is true as well. You don't want too little. Uh, well, no, you want you don't you you don't want too little adaptability, which is what you described. You don't want too much adaptability because then you're a limp noodle, you know. And there's no you're 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 bending and flowing with the breeze at any at any soft blow, and that's not advantageous either. So there's so in every environment, every niche, there's going to be a level of adaptability that's required, uh, and that's optimal. Um, uh, but it's not going to be extreme in either way. Well, that kind of goes into the next category of stuff, which is drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so with drive, you've got self self efficacy, discipline, open mindedness, uh, cunning, and narcissism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Walk me through. Yeah. Kind of that thought. So, self efficacy is 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 this uh, is this ability to um, it's kind of a combination of three things. Uh, the the combination is confidence. I know I can do this. The initiative to get started, and then the optimism, the realistic optimism that as I as I go through, as I continue on, I'll I'll figure it out. Right? There's gonna be roadblocks and stuff, but I'll just figure it out. So, self efficacy combines those those three things. If you don't have those three things in combination, you don't necessarily have the the self efficacy full picture, right? Because if you're just, for example, um, confidence, well, confidence on its own is not going to do much in terms of getting getting something done, right? So, so uh, it's same thing with initiative. If you're just in it, if you just have initiative, it's going to be a kind of a blind frenetic energy. And then if you're just optimistic, well, we know, I mean, you can, you can plant a garden and just say the weeds will not come, the weeds will not come, uh, they will come, right? So, so there has to be something behind that. So that's self-efficacy. Um, discipline is this ability to be steadfast and under, well, understand the wickets involved in, in a, in a goal or an outcome or an objective and be, be disciplined in the, in those those wickets and, and, um, to to accomplish that objective. Now, I bifurcate dis discipline in the book um, uh, to two kind of two categories. You have inner discipline or outer discipline. So, inner discipline, kind of like self discipline. Outer discipline is kind of this 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 um, this overall discipline when it comes to long term goals. So, the so the difference is this: the self disciplined person is really good at uh, those goals that the external world has no say. In whether or not they accomplish, right? So that's like you know eating healthy and and getting getting in shape and working out, right? So I can I can make a decision. I'm going to eat healthy from this point on, and and I can be in Vegas next week at the buffet. The buffet is not going to throw food at me. The external world has has very little say, if no say, on whether or not I eat healthy. Okay, um, that's self discipline. External discipline or outer discipline is this idea that you are you have an, a a goal or objective that the external world has a say. In whether or not you accomplish, right? So that's that's becoming a seal. It's, be, it's starting a podcast. It's writing a book. It's becoming a, a top surgeon, right? The external world is going to have a say in whether or not you do that. In other words, it's going to throw things at you that you must kind of adapt and roll with. And so the reason why I bifurcate that is because the, the, these these polarities can live in 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 extremes. I've known people who are very very high on self discipline. And they're very low on outer discipline. These are people who typically, the way this looks is someone who, for example, everything about their life is structured. They eat the right thing. They're in super good shape. They have everything kind of mapped out and everything's very there, spot on. They can't get an external goal or a long-term goal, you know, accomplished to save their lives, right? 
And there's a reason behind that, because if, if, if those people who are really high self-discipline, right, you know, you know, extreme, they love and need routine and structure. And, and you and, and I know, everybody knows, when you set a goal that the external world has a say in, you're going to be thrown out of structure real quick, right? <laughs> you need to, you, your whole, you, you're not going to, you may not be able to work out one day. You may have to eat something that you didn't want to eat, right? I mean, just, just kind of an example, right? So, so very high self-discipline, low, very low self-discipline, it, it can exist, right? I'm on the opposite. Actually, I have, I have pretty high discipline and I have low self-discipline. And so I'm really good at setting and achieving long-term kind of audacious goals, you know, when I when I'm when I'm told what to do something, you know, what how to do something, or I try to tell myself, I'm pretty bad, right? I mean, because I'm used to being outside of structure, I'm used to being on a right routine. I kind of butt up against it quite often. So in my in my life, to work on my self discipline, I've had to be more um, uh, uh, deliberate about injecting a little bit of routine into my life, so I can actually be self disciplined in a better way. But all this to say, most people are fairly balanced in this. Um, but there are there are cases where you may be higher on one side of that than the other and it's going to show up in your behavior so that's it's an interesting aspect um yeah yeah um, yeah that's very interesting yeah open-mindedness i mean that's just a passive openness to experience and ideas and things like that the open-minded person uh is uh is is passively open to new experience new ideas new new people new things right it's not it's different from curiosity curiosity and that's an attribute that's another attribute i just don't talk about in this book um, curiosity is a proactive, uh, thing, right? I'm going to go seek out new stuff. Right. But, but being open-minded, you know, one that that's probably more important because there's just a passiveness that I'm going to just, I'm going to be an open-minded person. Typically, if you're, you know, if you're, and I, this is, again, none of this is, a, is, is, um, black and white, but typically the people who are very highly successful driven people, there's, they have a, they have a, a good, a, a good amount of open-mindedness and an amount that allows them to, take in new ideas, new experiences, so they can actually accomplish their, their objective. If you're really low on it, you're very closed minded, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to achieve these long term objectives and stick with it. Um, cunning, I love because cunning is 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 felt uh, or, or seen as pejorative a lot of times, but but it's not, you know, cunning is is very neutral, the way we use cunning can be can be judged. I mean, we can use cunning uh, for evil, we can use it for good, but, but cunning on its own is simply thinking outside the box. You know, can I, can I problem solve in a different way? The cunning mind approaches a problem and immediately asks three questions. The first question is, are there rules and boundaries? The second question is, are they real or are they perceived? And the third question is, if they're real, what happens if I break them? Right. And that's, and then the cunning <laughs> mind begins to look at ways around a problem. Right. And so obviously a huge attribute for seals, right. And, and spec ops in general, because we're always thinking outside the box. Right. Uh, and again, but it can be used like, you know, Bernie Madoff is an example of bad, you know, cunning, like evil cunning, whereas Oscar Schindler is an example of good cunning, right? And so, um, and so you just have to, you have to understand that the way we use it can be judged, but the, but the elemental attribute is, is, is neutral. Um, and then finally, narcissism, which people always have an issue with, um, because for the same reasons that I did when I was, when I was putting the book together, I kept on coming back to narcissistic personality disorder. Um, which in fact is a disorder. And in fact, I got a copy of the DSM-5, which is a the psych Bible of all the psych diseases. And, and it has a few pages on narcissistic personality disorder. But the thing about that disorder is um, when you go through those, when you look at those pages, there's like nine criteria 
um, that the physician will read through. And if a physician can answer yes to five or more, then the physician can then diagnose the, the patient as disordered, i.e. they have the disorder. But only about 6% of the population are disordered. They have the disorder. So, and I looked at those nine things. And as I looked through them, I read them. And, and I'm happy to say I couldn't say yes to five or more, <laughs> right? But what I, I wasn't innocent of everything I was reading. In other words, I would read you know, some of the stuff I read. I was like, well, sometimes I feel like this. Sometimes I feel like that. And so so then I kind of went back and asked myself, well, why why did I why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? You know, yeah, I was a 22 year old kid. It was in the 90s. There's no war going on. It was the mid 90s. You know, and and um, you know, I was a patriot. Obviously, I wanted to serve my country. But the, the one of the real reasons, kind of a big reason, was I wanted to see if I could be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do something very few people could do. Um, so I asked my other Navy SEAL buddies, why did they become a Navy SEAL? They said the same thing, right? Yeah, they're patriots. Yeah, all that stuff. But they wanted to see if they could do something very few people could do. So, so in, in realizing that, I went to the very elemental definition of narcissism. And the very elemental definition of narcissism is the desire to stand out, be adored, be recognized, be made feel special. That's the, that's it. That's the definition. And, and honestly, I'll tell you with certainty, every single human being on this planet at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be desired be adored, be made feel special because it feels good. And it feels good because there's a certain neurology that we get. We get neurobiologically rewarded when we're adored and paid attention to. We get dopamine, we get serotonin, we get oxytocin, right? But it feels good. But but narcissism, first of all, we all have it. Second of all, it's the impetus to some of our most audacious goals, right? Why else would you want to be the best surgeon, best author, best Navy SEAL, best cop, right? You know, it's there's there's narcissism hidden in there, or maybe even explicit. But the idea is we all have it. Where do we stand on it? What are our levels? It is dangerous. There can be a tipping point, And it's, you know, you want to you want to avoid tipping over the edge, right? Uh, the way you do that is you surround yourself with people who tell you the truth, who, who ground you, who don't just tell you what you want to hear, who don't just bend the knee, right? Uh, who you're not always the center of attention, right? Now, the police community most of the time, uh, the SEAL community, a lot of the first responder community, where we have built into those communities um, grounding mechanisms. We keep each other grounded all the time, right? And so and so we, we manage that as a group a lot of times. If you marry the right person, your spouse does it for you. <laughs> I know mine does. And in and, and some cases, oh, yeah. I do for her, right? Uh, but this is how you metabolize your narcissism in a very healthy way, um, wherever it might stand. But you know what's interesting is so so one of the things I talk about in the culture cynical leadership class that I teach is one of the unique characteristics of elite units is this high level of candor. Yeah. Right? It's it's this hey rich, you know, and and, and initially it's done in a very gentle way, like, hey buddy, you pregnant? You you, you know, look like you, you yeah. know, those maternity pants. Right. Which is which is a nice way of saying I care about you, I want you to be here, but you're getting out of shape. Yeah. Yeah. Um what is interesting though is that that if that is the counterbalance to narcissism. As we are moving more into a world where we are not allowed to give feedback, where we don't want to trigger people or hurt their feelings, uh, you know, one of the most frustrating things for me as a business owner is we fire people all the time and never have an ability to go, look, dude, the reason I'm firing you is, you know, you're an asshole and you treat people poorly. Yeah, yeah. We have to say, well, you know, stage your last day. And, and so we're creating this culture where we, we're eliminating the feedback, the feedback loop that stops narcissism. Yeah. And and as a result, we're ending up with a lot of narcissistic personality types that are, you know, I, I always say, you know, like the, the, you know, DevGrew runs a selection to cert, select a certain kind of person. You know, politically right now in the country, we are selecting narcissistic assholes. Yeah. True. And we, we are 100% successful. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and we're not, you know, this, this is where having that internal mechanism and that truth speaking and, and candid feedback enables us to temper your narcissism yeah. in a way that it is, it is constructive because it does make you want to be a seal and it makes you want to do difficult missions and you may, you know, it makes you chase those things, but it also prevents you from then, you know, going on every TV show and, and spilling your guts about the stuff that happened when we temper it. Yeah. And we were, we we're fortunate in the, in the cop first responder seal communities because, uh, our humility is, um, is induced not only through each other, but also environment. Right. I mean, we, I always kind of say, I mean, you, you can be the best swimmer in the world, right. You can be surf, you can surf every day. If you turn your back on the ocean, it will kill you. Right. Um, yeah. So we are in environments that that candor is absolutely necessary. Debriefs are absolutely necessary. We create a habit of being very candorous and and rapid with that feedback because we because we care and we have to do it that fast. But I do agree. I think. I mean, again, I think I think there are there are organizations still out there that are that are you know executing candor. I think I've I've worked with businesses who who do it quite well. Uh, I think from a societal level, you know, th this is this is this is our job as a family to provide each other with that love and candor that we that we get used to the feedback. It all it all hinges on this idea of trust. And if you can build a trusting environment, because you can't if you don't have trust built between human beings, candor is going to sound like, you, you know, you're being an asshole. It's not going to it's not going to it's not going to come at you with the same weight and strength as it comes at you when you know someone loves and trusts you and you trust that person, right? Because we know all the people we can think of in our lives that we trust deeply, you know, the same, that, that same list are the people who tell us what we need to hear <laughs> when we, when we want. Yeah. So, so, um, so I think businesses where businesses can do better is they can understand that let's build this environment of trust first, right? Let's work on trust first. Once we get this environment of trust, I'm going to seed in part of trust building is we're going to seed in the ability to be candorous. And we're going to we're going to we're going to, we're going to um, gauge it and talk about it in a way that we know this is because we want the team to get better. It's not it's not to beat someone up or point the finger. It's like this is something that the team has to understand. And you, you start creating that environment. And, and man, you, well, you know, you get people who when they screw up, they're the first people to say they screwed up. Right. They are they are absolutely you, know, you, you get an environment where something happens, someone's to blame. And that person is the first person who steps forward and says, Hey, I screwed this up. This is what I did. This is what happened. You don't even have to point the fingers anymore. Um, that's the goal. Um, at a national level, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, people are, we're just in this, I think in this world where people, uh, want to feel like, um, they are heard. Um, and, uh, and more so, um, it's a fear-based system right now. You know, everything about our media, regardless of what political side you're on, is uh, focused on spreading fear about the other person. And um, and uh, you know, fear is a is a physiological response. <laughs> you know, so we're gonna we're gonna angle towards those people who are telling us the opposite of what the uh, of, of what the folks who are who who are afraid of are. So um, I don't know how do we get there. You know, we just need some more discourse, I guess. Yeah, well, and I think I mean I think it's it, you know it's a topic for a different discussion, but I'll kind of run it past. Like, um, we we are living right now in a time where others are exploiting our evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. We are we are being fed foods that have like the perfect salty sweet bliss point that we will eat until we gorge ourselves. We're being fed a diet of media that that you know, it triggers those fear circuits and makes us watch and and you know social media is is conditioning us to look for dopamine hits and it's just 
you know, the a variety of industries have figured out how to exploit our evolutionary biology, the, the drive that makes us like sweet food because you don't find it very often. And when you do, you can get fat on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, every day, three times a day, you just get fat. Yeah. You don't survive. You just get fat. Yeah. And I think that's true, you know, in a, in a lot of the work environments. And one of the things that I like about the attributes is it does give you a context to look at some of those things and go, wow, we're really high on on these you know, not so positive levels of attributes. Um, you, you touched on trust. Why don't we transition to team ability? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I will say team, uh, team ability, trust is not an attribute. It's not one of the team ability attributes. I know it's uh, the, the team ability attributes are, are um, integrity, uh, conscientiousness, humility, and humor. Uh, trust is, is much bigger. It's a much trust is this, again, trust is this category inside of which something is, it's a result of a lot of things. So a lot of these attributes that we talk about, leadership and team ability attributes, when we when we behave these attributes, it elicits trust. The thing about trust is we can't, trust is not just a feeling. Uh, you know, a feeling is just a human emotion. Trust is a belief. It's a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified. And so what that tells us is something we already know. And that is you cannot make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows someone to choose to trust you, right? So the so the so the so the result, the the whole trust environment is a result of these attributes. And so we think about so for example, the the team ability attributes, integrity, this is do the right thing. That's as simple as that. You know, so so we know when we see someone, and now here's the thing about do the right thing. It's subjective to the group. Okay. Uh, yeah, do, for sure. Do the right thing for a Cub Scout troop looks different than do the right thing for an ISIS troop. Okay. And so we yeah. have to understand what do the right thing looks like for our for our group. Um, but when we do that, that elicits, that begins to build trust, build team ability, right? Um, uh, conscientiousness is really simple. The, the ability to, to be reliable, work hard, and be diligent. Diligent, reliable, and hard work. That's conscientiousness. Um, humility, I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, we, we know arrogance kills teams. And when we see arrogance, we don't trust it. We just don't. You know, um, when we see confidence, we trust confidence, but we don't trust arrogance. And so humility... Uh, humility and confidence walk a nice uh, kind of parallel line a lot of times, and when we know there can be there can be very the, the best folks are those who are confident and humble, right? Um, uh, arrogance and humility go they, they're they're opposites. You can't you can't do it. So uh, so I would say that that humility is a no brainer because we just we just don't think of people who are arrogant as teammates. We just don't. They just don't present themselves because of behavior. And then finally, humor. Humor is really important because I've never experienced a high-performing team that doesn't have it. Um, humor is powerful because it's uh, neurobiologically rewarding us in ways that are unfathomably powerful. Powerful. When we laugh, which is an involuntary response, we immediately get hit with dopamine. You know, reward. It's not a reward. It's a motivation chemical. Keep doing this. We get hit with endorphins, which masks our pain. That's like the human human opiate. Um, and then we get oxytocin. We're in this together, like the, the, the bonding, binding chemical for human beings. And so, so when we laugh, especially with others, we immediately, our body is saying, this is good. Keep doing this. This doesn't feel that bad. We're in this together. That's why laughter is a hack into any miserable situation. It's why the highest performing teams will joke around in miserable situations. It's one of the things I miss the most about the teams because we would joke in some of the most miserable situations and someone would crack a joke. We'd laugh and suddenly you're a hack. It's a hack into feeling better, knowing we can do this. The other hack it is it, it allows us to 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 jump into is courage. When we step into our fear, we get dopamine. When we laugh, we get dopamine. All right. So so some of us have probably had this experience where we have been genuinely afraid or anxious 
in a situation, someone says something that makes us genuinely laugh and the fear goes away. Right? It's because we've just given our body the same reward that we would have had we stepped into our fear in the first place. Right. So, so again, I've never experienced a high performing team that doesn't have humor as a huge part of it. Humor as an attribute is our ability to laugh. You don't have to be that person making the jokes, but as long as you have the ability to laugh, uh, you're going to do fine. Yeah. It's a sense of humor, right? Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not being funny. It's, it's a sense of humor yeah. Yeah. And, and finding, finding, you know, the ability to laugh in difficult situations, yeah. obviously, you know, brings a, a high amount of humor with it. And I think especially in, in this industry, it is, it's a coping mechanism. It's a bonding mechanism. Yes. It is, you know, it, it is, it, it's critical to teams and the teams that, that lose their sense of humor, lose yeah. their, their social construct. Yeah. They lose their connection to one another. And they lose their resilience um, as well. I mean, you can't, I mean, it, it's a, it's again, it's a, such a powerful tool. It, it almost, it almost, transcends all of the categories because it helps in almost every one of them right because it well and if you were going to try and like hey let's make let's make rich you know more able to deal with difficult things or pain or whatever yeah you, you would give rich endorphins mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you would give him dopamine yeah. yep. and and if you wanted him to care about the people he was with you would give him oxytocin right, yeah. right? It, it literally is it's 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 you know, it's using your evolutionary biology for good. Yes, yeah, that's why it's so good. That's why it's, that's why it feels so good. That's why you know, and that's why one of the things about society. I mean, it, we have to keep laughing. You know, to to not laugh is death. <laughs> so. Well, that yeah, that's that's where the, it's really scary that we are like we, we as a society that we're losing our sense of humor and we're like, oh, the comedian shouldn't say that. Yeah. He shouldn't be allowed to make that joke. Like, no, no. And, and it's funny because it, growing up, you know, with tactical teams, I started over at seventeen, right? So I've been surrounded by SWAT cops and special operators my whole life. Yeah. It brings a certain sense of humor, which is I will call a little dark. Oh yeah, I always say, yeah. Uh, you know, I can laugh at just about anything, yeah. and and you know, it's you hear people say, oh, too soon. And, and of course, the traditional response to that is never too soon. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but but in this case, literally never too soon. Yeah. Because the ability to laugh about something terrible is how you get through. Hundred percent. And we're not the only ones to do, do it. I mean, you know, uh, I talked to surgical teams, you know, nursing nurse, oh, nursing yeah. teams. I mean, people who are constantly dealing with trauma, uh, they, their survival is dependent on their ability to find humor here and there. But we've also seen the medical benefits of people who people who've had uh, terminal illnesses or cancer who who go on a laughing regiment and they, and they actually, uh, they actually uh, get better. I mean, because it is the, it is quite literally the best medicine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Um, why don't we, so let's, let's talk about the last category, which is leadership. And obviously, you know, the, the, the first three are kind of inwardly focused. Team ability is kind of mildly outwardly focused. Leadership is very much outwardly focused. Yeah. Yeah. It really is because it's all about these behaviors that other people are looking at and experiencing. So empathy, I mean, again, empathy, can I absorb, can I get in the, can I get into the shoes of another? Right. And, and we don't, you know, someone who has a has just an inability to do that, we tend not to look at as real strong leaders, right? I mean, that 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 idea that I can, I can really get into the shoes of people who are in my span of care and do what I need to do, do what I can do for them from that position is is really is really good. So as 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 leader, as people in charge, if we want to be leaders, if we find ourselves low in empathy, it's something we need to work on, right? Because it's really that important. Um, selflessness, again, you know, this is the ability to do something for another, but it's it adds this kind of at, that that it adds this kind of risk or loss to oneself. So so uh, so for example, the um, uh, if I'm walking down the, uh, the 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 street and I and I 
see a, a homeless person, and I give that person $10, right? That's actually generous. I'm doing more than is expected, but it's not really, it's no skin off my back, right? But if that homeless person turns around and, and gives that $10 to another homeless person, now that's selfless, because that's, that's, that's giving something, doing something for another that is, uh, is at some sort of risk or loss to oneself, right? Um, this is why selflessness, not generosity, is a leadership attribute, okay? We don't look for generous leaders. We look for selfless leaders. Now, selflessness doesn't mean putting one's life at risk all the time. It could mean giving someone time. You know, time is literally the currency of leadership, right? We all have the same amount, and when we give it to another per person, we can't get it back, right? So when you give it to another person, that person really feels like you are doing something for them. You're giving something to them, right? So, so as leaders, we want to be able to give that to others and be selfless, right? That's how important that is. Um, authenticity, that has to do with our ability to be consistent in our behavior, okay? It doesn't, doesn't have to do with, I'm always open kimono about everything and all that stuff and wear everything on my sleeve emotionally, no. It's, am I consistent in my behavior? Am I authentic in my behavior so that people expect and know what to expect from me? You could be a, a generally grumpy person, but if you're consistent that way, people will begin to expect that. They may not like it, but they can expect it, right? So, so that's authenticity. Um, decisiveness, again, we have to think about decisiveness in terms of the speed with which we make decisions. Um, decisive, making decisions is a skill. You can teach someone how to do better and make better decisions. Decisiveness adds that speed and efficiency factor that has to be considered. We don't necessarily look at people as leaders if they are people who waffle and can't decide and kind of wish wash, right? We just, we just don't, right? And so, so we as, as people in, in positions of leadership or people in charge that want to be leaders have to just understand that, that decisiveness is necessary. We have to be able to get, gather data and at a certain point say, okay, I don't have 100%, maybe I have 80, but I'm going to make a decision. That has to be buttressed by the last one, which is accountability, which is once you make that decision, you begin to move out. Are you owning that decision? Uh, the consequences and the, and, the, and the good stuff from it, right? That's ownership. That's I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm taking accountability for my decisions and the results thereof, right? Um, and again, people who are in positions of being in charge and they're constantly pointing the finger at other people, we just don't tend to look at those people as leaders, real leaders. I mean, I know there's some examples of people out there who, who always point fingers, right? But uh, but real, true leaders, like people we'd follow to hell and back, okay? Because pointing fingers means you are cease, you're ceding control, right? You're basically giving the steering wheel up to someone else, and you're not taking control. You're not taking, uh, you know, responsibility and accountability. And that's that's a serious, uh, a serious um, charge for anybody who's who wants to be a leader. Well, and the, and the attributes, you know, the leadership attributes are things that, you know, are really more based on the way the follower reacts to the leader, yeah. right? Like it's, it's, I want, you know, you look at empathy, like I, if you're my leader, I want you to care about mm -hmm. me and be able to put yourself in my position so that you'll make good decisions. Periodically, I want you to be selfless. I want you to, to give up what you want for me. Yeah. You, if if you're not authentic, I can't trust you. If you won't be accountable and own when you make a mistake, then I can't trust you to not throw me under the bus. And and you know, as a leader, I come to you for decision. Yes. Right. That that yeah. is that is what leaders do is they make decisions between two difficult alternatives. Yes. Yeah. I, I always say like you know th there are two kinds of things that come into my you know into my business cookies and turds. <laughs> Nobody needs help eating the cookies. Right. Right. They just eat the cookies, right? So what ends up on my desk are turtles. Right. It's it's which of these two difficult decisions do you want to make? And and the farther up you move in an organization, the more Solomon's choice that becomes. Yes. Yeah. The harder it is to choose between, wow, these are really terrible 
alternatives, I'm going to have to make a decision. Yeah. And and as 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 a follower, as somebody who is reliant on a leader, if they won't make a decision, then they doom you to whatever happens. Yes. They do. And oh, by the way, uh, it has to be buttressed by accountability, right? You can go and make decisions all day long. If you as a leader are not accountable and don't and, and are not openly accountable for that. In other words, I can someone can come into my office and say, hey, can you help me with this decision? And I say, yeah, go that way. They go that way. It's it, it screws up or it's the wrong thing. And then we blame that person. Right. That is not yeah. leadership. Right. We have to say, oh, that's on me. I got you know, so so I would say as leaders, you can always delegate responsibility. You can never delegate accountability. Right. Because because we and in fact, as leaders, we're supposed to delegate responsibility, but we always are accountable. If I if I told one of my guys when I was a commanding officer, hey, you have this, this is yours. And they went off and they screwed it up. Say, OK, you screwed it up. Let's see what you did wrong. That's on me. Right. It's on. I'm not I'm not dropping the accountability bucket on you. Right. They will take accountability because you're modeling it. Right. But ultimately, you know, I'm taking accountability as well. And that's the that's the that's the secret. But but I've had leaders. I've had people in charge who delegate both. And that's wrong. It's just not leadership. Yeah, it's, it's you know, you see leaders who will delegate, uh, you know, they'll delegate uh, the negative. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I always say like you, negative, negative things that occur are your responsibility. Yeah. Positive things that occur are a result of your team's good work. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's a good right? model. It's, it's, yeah, whether it's true or not. I mean, you, you, you know, ostensibly, you could say in some cases that things go right. It's like, OK, yeah, that was a. That's good stuff on my part, but that's not said by a leader. That's, you know, that's, you, you, that's, that's all under the water and it doesn't need to be expressed. Yeah. We won. I lost. Right. Um, I'd like to talk to one more thing to just kind of wrap up our time together. It's just an interesting concept that, that you talked about in the book, which is dynamic subordination. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a, so this is a concept that actually describes how high performing teams in fact task organize. Um, and, and, and the, the idea is that a high performing team, if you were to look at a task organization chart, it does not look like a pyramid where the leader sits on top and dictates. It does not look like a flat line where everybody's, everybody's kind of doing the same thing and it, no one outranks anybody and, and we're all in this and it's all groovy. And it doesn't even look like the upside down pyramid, the servant leadership model where the, the leader's sitting on the bottom of that pyramid, right? Um, what it really looks like is an amorphous blob, right? And dynamic subordination implies that a team understands that challenges and issues can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who's closest to that problem, the most capable, immediately steps up and takes lead. And everybody follows and supports, right? Uh, and then the environment shifts again, and someone else steps up. And I also call it alpha hopping. That alpha position just hops to where it needs to go. And so so it, it takes, it takes um, uh, hierarchy out of the equation. Your, your position on a team has nothing to do with your hierarchical position. It has to do with what you contribute to that team. And so, so I always say I was on hundreds of combat missions. I was in charge of every single one. It didn't mean I was always being supported. In fact, most of the time it was the opposite. I was supporting other people, um, assaulters, breachers, you know, snipers, whatever. Sometimes the environment would shift and they'd be supporting me, right? But but ultimately, we are a team that that moves like an amoeba or a flock of birds, where where we we uh, the person steps up, we all support. This is how we play the long game. This is how we optimally perform. Because when someone is up in front doing you know leading, other people are supporting. Guess what? The people in the very back could be doing. They might be able to recover. Right? There's kind of like the flock of geese flying in the V formation. That 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 lead geese that lead goose is taking all the wind resistance right um but that lead goose doesn't stay up there for too long that lead goose after a while a few minutes switch swaps out with someone else or another goose right and, and they keep on swapping out so this is the idea about dynamic subordination it's the way you play the long game and it's the way all high performing teams operate yeah that's fantastic yeah i think of like a bicycle peloton yeah. 
right? You're on the front pedaling like hell for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, then you're peeling off and recovering yeah, yeah. so you can make it back yeah. up. Yeah. So Rich, the, uh, kind of tradition on the debrief five, we like to end with five rapid fire yeah, questions, yeah. Uh, short answer, you know, kind of gut instincts. Okay. Um, actually, before we get there though, what's, what's the best way for people to engage with you? Where can they find you know, Rich's, you know, latest work and, and, and content. Yeah. The best, the best and easiest is the attributes.com. So it's, it's all one word, the attributes.com we have there, we have all of our stuff, all of our consulting, uh, information, all of our, um, you have the book there. We have some assessment tools there that you can take to see where you stand on those attributes and media and things like that. All my social handles are on there as well. You can find them. So, so the attributes.com is kind of the one-stop shop. And we'll link that in the show notes. All right, let's go on to the rapid fires. Okay. What's your most important habit? Um, asking better questions. The the brain, the mind will focus on whatever you ask it. We're question answering machines. So uh, if you feed it the wrong questions, why am I so bad at this? Why am I so pissed off? You will get answers. It's, 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 it's unavoidable. But if you feed it the right ones, you know, why am I grateful? What can I do better? You'll get those answers too. So I've done that since I was in high school. What's your favorite, current favorite online resource, website, or podcast? Uh, okay. Well, I'm supposed to say Huberman cause he's a good friend, but I do like, um, it is, it is great. I think podcasts, I love Sam Harris. Uh, I've always loved his podcast for quite a while. Um, uh, resource, uh, I read, I try to read as much as I can. I'm actually part of a, this is, this might sound funny to some, but I'm part of a Navy SEAL book club. It's a bunch of us SEALs, both past and present. So we got Vietnam guys all the way to active duty and we pick a book um and every month or month and a half we we read it and we get on a zoom we just had one last night and we just discuss it and then we pick another book and so so i've gotten reading back into my into my repertoire which i really like okay i'm gonna avoid the obvious joke that it's a coloring book and that you guys eat the crayons yeah well that's that happens <laughs> <laughs> what's the uh what's the most important characteristic of an effective leader listening yeah just shut up and listen. what's what's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years um, uh, well, I've been married to my wife for 23 years. And one of the things she's, she's, um, shown me and, and, and made and, uh, and allowed me to believe is in the beauty of, of people and, um, and, and, and empathy. Right. And, and my wife, she finds beauty in everybody. Um, and I think that's such a, such a unique, great quality. And so, um, I think changed my mind about the, um, the importance and the power of true empathy. Final question. What's the most profound memory of your career? Um, boy, there are so many, but I would say, I would say if I were to kind of, um, uh, pull a bunch together and make one, it's, it's this idea that when you have the right group of people, um, operating in, uh, towards the, towards a common objective and goal, uh, and you can laugh and you can, you can gel, um, that is, that's kind of, uh, that's heaven right there. I mean, that, that's the best, that's the best you can be. That's a high performing team. Even when you're in really miserable circumstances, you are in bliss in, in terms of the people you, you go through. So, so I think, I think the, the idea that I could in many cases be walking in the middle of like you know, Al Qaeda central in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? In a beehive, right? And I had no concerns because I knew the people around me 
we had it we had it locked i mean i had the usual you know risk assessment tools going on but nothing you know nothing that said we you know we couldn't handle it and i think those 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 times were very profound in terms of man this is just a great group of people and i love them and i trust them and and i'm just i'm where i need to be that's fantastic Rich, first, thanks for your service to the country. Um, thanks for the work you're doing now. I think it's it's really fascinating. I think it's a it's a good. You did a fantastic job of transitioning, you know, a life of service to the country into lessons learned that I think a lot of people can can apply. And thank you so much for being here today. With well, me. thanks, John. It's been a pleasure, and uh, and thanks for 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 asking. And I'm so glad we finally got it done. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, buddy.